I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. Every Christian is called to be an unbeliever. Now, how does that sound to you? Probably a little unsettling. Because you don't have to be in the, in the Bible very much to know that it puts great stress upon believing. Christians are known as believers. Faith is foundational. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. So to be a Christian, you have to be a believer, but it's equally true that every believer is called, or every Christian is called to be an unbeliever. There is a time when unbelief is the only right thing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe. You see, the same Scriptures that encourage us to believe also encourage us not to believe. Now, is that a contradiction? What's no more a contradiction than if I told you that in order to live, you have to inhale and exhale? You have to inhale oxygen, you have to exhale carbon dioxide. And the Scriptures present these same kind of ideas. The Bible tells us that in order to love righteousness, I have to hate sin. In order to accept Christ, I have to reject self. In order to follow good, I have to flee evil. And that same relationship exists when it comes to belief and unbelief. You can't believe truth unless you also refuse, reject, stop believing error. You can't be a believer without also being an unbeliever. I saw a well-known television preacher on Larry King Live a few weeks ago. And Larry King asked him, what he thought Americans ought to do in light of the September 11th tragedy. Here was his answer. Go to a church or go to a synagogue or go to a mosque or go to a temple and worship. Now that's a politically correct answer. In fact, I imagine Larry King probably said amen. But it's a spiritual lie. Because you would be better off staying home than going and sitting under a false teacher. You see, the popular notion today is I accept all religions as true, but you can't do that because they're mutually exclusive. In order to believe what is true, I also have to not believe what is false. And that's what John is going to tell us in our passage this morning. Now, he introduces the Holy Spirit to us at the end of chapter 3. Verse 24 ends this way. And we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit which He has given us. And then verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. You see, there is one true Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is given to each of us, but there are also spirits in the world as well. So don't be gullible. There are false spirits. There are deceiving spirits. There are spirits that we are not to believe. If you look at the end of verse 6, he says, 
There is the spirit of truth, and there is the spirit of error. There are spirits in this world that propagate error, that propagate falsehood, that propagate teaching contrary to the Word of God. And so there is an urgent need for discernment among Christians. You say, well, the loving thing to do is just to accept everybody's opinion. Love is open-minded when it comes to the ideas of others. Have you noticed today that love is the trump card? If you say, well, I don't believe what that guy said, somebody goes, oh, love. Can't say that. That's an interesting concept. Because if we look carefully at our passage this morning, we will find that these verses fall between two extensive passages on what subject? Love. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 11, through the end of that chapter, John's talking about love. Right after this passage in verse 7, he starts talking about love again, and he talks about love all the way through chapter 4. So with love as his bookends, John says, don't believe every spirit. You see, believing everything is not the mark of love. Believing everything is the mark of immaturity. Paul said in Ephesians 4.14, don't be children any longer tossed about by every wind of doctrine. It is childish to swallow every new teaching. It's childish to go along with every new idea. It's childish to gullibly embrace everybody's opinion. You see, a mark of maturity is unbelief as well as belief. You say, well, how do we discern? How do we know what to believe and what not to believe? How do we know who to believe and who not to believe? Well, John says, test the spirits. Now, that kind of conjures up some ideas of a seance or something. Test the spirits. How do we test the spirits? Well, he goes on to say, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, you test a spirit through the man it's working in because spirits speak through men. Now that may conjure up some other ideas of strange voices and green vomit and spinning heads. You say, well, how does, how does a spirit speak through a man? Well, have you ever experienced the spirit of God speaking through a man? We listen to a man's voice and we say what? God spoke to me today. Well, in a similar way, there are evil spirits who speak through men. Behind every false prophet, every false teacher is an evil spirit. You see, they don't come up with these ideas out of their own intellectual capacity, either consciously are unconsciously, they are being guided or really misguided by an evil spirit. So every prophet, every teacher, everybody who speaks on absolute truth is a mouthpiece for a spirit. When a prophet opens his mouth, he's either inspired by the spirit of truth or a spirit of error. 
You know, people often ask me if I think such and such a false teacher is demon-possessed. I will go even further than that. On the basis of this passage, I will say that every false teacher is demon-possessed. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Timothy 4.1 that the content of a false teacher's message is the doctrine of demons. So every prophet, every teacher is either Holy Spirit-possessed or evil spirit-possessed. And because of that, we'd better be able to discern between the two. Because of that, we'd better take John's warning and test the spirits. Now that's difficult to do today for a couple reasons. Number one, because false teachers are not obvious. By their very definition, they are deceitful. You can't look them up in the yellow pages under false teacher, deceiver, antichrist. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You see, Satan's servants don't come as Satan's servants. They come as servants of righteousness. They come professing to be God's servants. They come camouflaged. They come incognito. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophets who say, Hi, I'm a false prophet. No. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Outwardly, they're loving, tender, concerned, cuddly. Inwardly, they're desiring to wreck, ruin, devour, destroy. And John says there are many false prophets. There aren't just a couple of them. They aren't rare. Over and over again, Scripture warns us that there are many false teachers. They're all around us. And John says we need to test the spirits. You see, John is concerned about teaching us the same thing that we're concerned about teaching our children. And that is how to discriminate. We tell our kids if someone pulls up beside you in a car and says, get in, discriminate. If someone walks up to you and offers you candy, discriminate. See, we have missing children today because they didn't discriminate. All they saw was the sugar. And they were lured into a car and their life was ripped off. Well, I would suggest to you today that too many Christians are only seeing the sugar. They're falling for a wrapper that says God. But inside there are no spiritual calories and no spiritual life. So John says, test the spirits. Because the candy shelf is full. There are many false prophets in the world today. And then I think there's a second reason why it's difficult to do this in our day, and that is 
because we live in a spiritually skeptical society. Now, in the first century, they believed in spirit beings. They had it all twisted around. They believed in in mythology and gods, but they were convinced that there were spirit beings who influenced man. In our society today, we've grown beyond this. We have come of age. We are too sophisticated to believe in spirit beings. And because of that, I would suggest to you that we are far more vulnerable to their influence. And so as Christians, we need to combat the humanistic attitude of our society and listen to the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual, fo- spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We need to see with spiritual eyes beyond the physical to the spiritual activity that is going on. And that's why John's emphasis here is not just on testing the man, but on testing the spirit behind the man, because that's the issue. Now, what's the test? What test do we apply to these spirits speaking through false prophets? Well, the test is twofold. John tells us we're to test his message, and his multitude. We're to ask two questions. The first question is, what is he saying? The second question is, who's listening? First of all, his message, what is he saying in verses 2 and 3? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that he is coming and is now already in the world. Now there are two essential questions relative to a preacher's message. Number one is who is Jesus? That's the issue. You run into somebody and you have a question about whether they're true or false, that's the question to ask them. Who is Jesus? And that's very clear from verse 3 because after stating what what they have to believe in verse 2, he sums it up in verse 3 by saying, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus. You see, Jesus is the issue. Now, Jesus is his human name. He was never called Jesus prior to the Incarnation. Prior to coming to the stable in Bethlehem, he never had the name Jesus. So the issue is, who is Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago? And John underlines the answer to that question two ways. First of all, by his name, and second, by his nature. First, his name He says in verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ. That is, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. See, that name tells us that this historical Jesus born in Bethlehem, this one called Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the promised one 
of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who also has the name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. They are one in the same. Jesus is the Messiah. But not only does he underline that truth by his name, he also underlines it by his nature. Because notice what he says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, how many people here this morning have come in the flesh? None of you have come in the flesh. Because in order to come in the flesh, you had to exist somewhere prior to the flesh. You see? In order to come in the flesh, you had to exist prior to the flesh. You see, you didn't come at birth, you started at birth. There's only one person in history who has ever come in the flesh, and that's the preexistent one. That's the one who could say, before Abraham was, I am. And so his very nature is that he is preexistent God, and he is flesh humanity. That's why the incarnation is so important to us. Because in the incarnation, God did something he never did before and never will again. He became flesh. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the God-man. Fully God and fully man. And you can recognize the Spirit of God speaking through a man because that will be his message about who Jesus is. And then secondly, you need to ask a second question about a preacher's message, and that is, not only who is Jesus, but who is Jesus to you? You see, this word confesses means to say the same thing. To say the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus, but it implies more than just an acknowledgement, more than just a profession. It implies a commitment. It means to trust in. It means to rest your life on this great historic person. That's the way the word is used in Philippians 2.11. It says that every knee should bow and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, bowing and confessing go together. In the gospel accounts, there were demons that acknowledged the deity of the Lord Jesus. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 24, they say, We know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 11, they say, You are the Son of God. You see, the demons acknowledge what most of Israel did not, and that is that Jesus is the Messiah. But there was no confession, as the word is used here. You see, they didn't trust Him. They didn't commit themselves to Him. And throughout the course of history, there have been many religious leaders who had excellent creeds. Creeds that acknowledged the deity and humanity of the Lord Jesus, but they never committed themselves to Him. And that's the issue here. So two questions need to be asked of every teacher of religion today. Question number one, do you acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth, the man who lived and loved and died and rose again, is the Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. And secondly, do you follow him? Are you committed to him? Is he your Lord, your strength, your everything? 
Now, how many voices today in the religious world would fail that test? The liberal preacher today says the Jesus of history is not really important to us. It's only his teaching that matters. In fact, all those stories about his virgin birth and the miracles and the resurrection, they're all highly exaggerated. They're probably just a lot of mythological, legendary ideas. But the history doesn't really matter anyway. What really matters is his teaching. What do you think? Well, John says, if they do not confess that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, they flunk the test. What about the cults? The Christian scientist says that Jesus was just a man upon whom the Christ Spirit came at his baptism and then left at his cross. So he was just a man and the the Christ Spirit came and sort of rested on him. What do you think? Well, John says if they do not confess that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, they flunk the test. The Mormon says Jesus was a man who became a God and came to show all of us how we too can become a God. What do you think? John says if they don't confess Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, they flunk the test. Jehovah's Witness teacher says Jesus was born a man and became the Messiah in 29 A.D. And if you ask him what he means by Messiah, he will tell you that doesn't mean that he is God, big G. It means he is God, little g. What do you think? Well, John says if they don't confess Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, they flunk the test. What about the orthodox preacher? There are many orthodox preachers today who say, yes, of course we believe Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. We have it in our creed. It's written in our hymn books. We repeat it every Sunday morning. But if you ask him, but do you confess him? Are you committed to him? Do you live by him? He begins to stutter. John says, if they do not confess that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh... They flunk the test. We need to test the spirits. When you run into a suspect teacher, ask him two questions. Who is Jesus and who is Jesus to you? And the answers will tell you whether he's speaking from the spirit of God or the spirit of error. That's the first half of the test. That's how to test his message. Secondly, we're to test his multitude. Who's listening to him? And that's verses 4 to 6. Notice verse 4 to 6. The first word in each of these verses is verse 4, you. Verse 5, they. Verse 6, we. And what he's telling us in these three verses, if you read them, and we will read them in a moment, he's telling us that you can tell a false teacher or you can tell a a true teacher by who's listening to them. Who's the audience? Who's following their teaching? But he talks here about three categories of people, and I want to look at those three categories. The first is you in verse 4. He says, you are from God, little children, 
and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. First group is you. These are the people who are listening to John. And John says they are from God. In verse 1, he calls them beloved. Here he calls them little children. These are the Christians of the first century and the Christians of today. See, this is us. Now, what does that tell us? Two things. Number one, it tells us who John expects to test the Spirit. You see, he gives this exhortation to every Christian, even little children, even the youngest of all Christians. You see, this is not an exhortation reserved for pastors or leaders or missionaries. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need a course in spirit testing. You just need to be a Christian, even the very youngest Christian, because he told us in chapter 3 and verse 24 that the very youngest Christian has the Spirit of God living in him. And then the second thing it tells us is how well he expects us to do. Every Christian, even the little children, have overcome them. And who's the them? The false teachers. You see, no matter how young a Christian you are, you can escape their traps, you can elude their errors, you can be victorious. And how are you to be victorious? By your great intellect? By your great study of the cults? By your clever arguments? No. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 4. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The simple reason that we can be victorious is that God who dwells in us is greater than Satan. Now, we use this verse a lot, and it really applies to a whole lot of circumstances in our life, but it's really given in the context of the spiritual battle that we're in. It's given in the context of discerning truth from error. And that's very reassuring. In a world filled with deceit, in a world filled with false prophets, it's encouraging to know that we have resources that they don't have. Now, to say that God is greater than Satan is an understatement, wouldn't you say? I mean, God created Satan. This is not a fair fight, but Satan started it. In fact, if, if you had an organizational chart of the universe, Satan was on a par with Michael the archangel, and then he got fired. So he's no match for God. In Revelation chapter 20, we're told that in a future day, God will send just one angel to lay hold of Satan and throw him into the abyss for a thousand years. One angel. He's no match for God. But don't miss John's point. His point is that he's no match for you either. Because God is in you. What an encouraging truth. And then the second group in verse 5 is they. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Who is they? They are the false teachers. They are from the world. And how can you recognize them? John says you can recognize them by who's listening to them. 
And who's listening to them? The world. You see, one of the ways you can recognize a false teacher is that unsaved men and women are comfortable with their message. Now, why is an unsaved person comfortable with their message? Well, he tells us in verse 5 that they speak as from the world. What they're saying is what the world wants to hear. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. What does the world want to hear? Well, let me suggest to you that the prime thing that the world wants to hear is about the greatness and glory of man. If you can build into your message the exaltation of man, the world will listen. And so the message that sells is man has the capacity, you have the capacity in and of yourself to reach holiness, to reach spirituality, to reach heaven, to become gods. You see, that's a message that sells. And running like an undercurrent through all of false teaching is the concept of salvation by works. Because what does that do? It feeds my ego. I have the capacity to work my way to God, and it strokes my ego. See, the world doesn't want to hear about salvation through self-denial. If you can get a message that will present salvation apart from self-denial, the world will start listening. And then there's a third group. And that's we in verse 6. He says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now this third group is we. These are the apostles of whom John is one. These are the true teachers in contrast to the false teachers. And how can you tell a true teacher? Well, by those who listen to him. Verse 6 says, He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. Now, did you catch that? John never had his goal that everybody would listen to him. A true teacher will not have everyone agreeing with him. A true teacher will not have everyone saying amen because truth divides. But John says, Those who know God will listen. Why? Because those who know God will hear the Spirit of God speaking truth through that person. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, if you find yourself listening to a preacher that other Christians aren't listening to, you need to take a second look. If you're sitting in a little group listening and saying amen and you look around and uh, unbelievers are saying amen also, you need to take a second look. Because John says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By what? By the multitude that's following. By who's listening. So John says, test the spirits because there are many false spirits speaking through false teachers in our world. And what's the test? Check his message and check his multitude. 
Two questions. What is he saying and who's listening? And then God help us to be unbelievers when it comes to error as well as believers when it comes to the truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this challenge in the context of love because love is always to be spoken in truth. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to be discerning in the world around us to realize that there are many deceivers there because there is the ultimate deceiver, Satan, behind it all. But Father, we thank you for that great promise. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And Father, we thank you for the reassurance that you will keep us true and you will keep us faithful. And Father, we just humbly desire today to follow you in the truth of your word and be used by you to influence those in this world around us to bring them to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.